I'm Terry Thompson, and you're listening to Playback, the podcast built on the philosophy that radio is instantaneous. Well, radio stories from the NPR archives are not exactly instantaneous, but they sure are fun. This month on Playback, we celebrate all things October 1988, like the 75th anniversary of the magnificent War of the Worlds, the powerful radio drama that had real people acting like extras in a Tom Cruise movie. Bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. The ability of radio to create this kind of psychotic effect uh, certainly was a demonstration of its ubiquity and its power. If there's one thing I've learned, it's never underestimate the power of radio to create a psychotic effect. Holy mackerel. And no, that's not the sound of a Halloween prank. That's NPR's Peter Breslow climbing up the north face of Mount Everest. Because I can't even see you all the way down. Oh, my God. Peter Breslow takes us along for the journey in this award-winning bit of journalism, recorded 23,000 feet above sea level. And also, actor Tom Hanks joins Terry Gross to chat about his career and his boyish good looks. I have this big nose and a squeaky voice. and, and, that, and That's how you think of yourself? Well, yeah, yeah. So that's not I, how other people think of you? Well, God bless him, because all I see is this massive... I, I keep wondering what squirrel ran through my hair all the time. <laughs> yep, it's October 1988, and the squirrels are loose. So I know the first question in your mind is... Just what was going on with a presidential race that fall? Poll taker Lou Harris says that although George Bush is ahead of Michael Dukakis in the polls, there are many voters who want the next administration to make some basic changes. He says that on a number of key issues, voters would like to see a Bush administration take a different course than the Reagan administration. Bush is ahead of Dukakis by nine points. Times are good and peace is broken out in many places. This should add up to an electorate that wants the status quo. Well, it's just not so. By 54 to 40 percent, a persistent and consistent majority of likely voters say they want the next president to break with the past, not to continue the same direction in which we've been headed. They want new policies, not the Reagan policies. What's more, 45 percent of all the voters are critical of George Bush for wanting to continue the older policies of the past and not to change to new policies that will move the country ahead on key areas such as drugs, children, health, education, housing, and environment. What's more, by 54 to 44 percent, a clear majority think Dukakis, not Bush, will more likely come up with the changes and new programs the country needs to move ahead in the next four years. Make no mistake about it, change is still an issue that can cut in this election, and it could cut for Dukakis. If it does, then this race can narrow as we go down the stretch. What's more, the electorate is now polarizing over this issue of change. By sex, it's dramatic. Men oppose change by 49 to 47 percent, but women opt for change by 62 to 32 percent, a 30-point margin. Young people are divided on change. Voters 65 and over want it by 62 to 29 percent. Business executives opposed to change by 12 points, but blue-collar workers want it by 21. Those who voted for Reagan in 1984 opposed change by 25 points. But Democrats who voted for Reagan want change by 27 points. Political moderates want change by 23 points, while conservatives oppose it by 20. 
white Catholics favor change by 11 points, but white followers of TV evangelicals oppose it by 15. 75% of Hispanics and 85% of blacks opt for change. Whites are for it by only six points. Obviously, change is a real cutting edge in this election in these final days. Of course, whether or not the issue will move people in the election, that remains to be seen. There's a change in the weather. Check out next month's playback to see how that presidential election thing came out. From now on, there's going to be a change in me. Mm -hmm. My walk will be different. My talking my name. Writer Daniel Pinkwater had an interesting reaction to the election that fall, especially after watching the vice presidential candidates face off the week before. I watched the debate between Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle with a lot of pleasure. For some reason, it gave me a warm, secure feeling. This puzzled me. Intellectually, it was clear to me that I was watching a fairly embarrassing performance. Two senators... One a smooth, rich Texan, professional politician, and the other, who appeared to be the slowest-thinking mammal on earth, spoke one and two-minute campaign advertisements. There was maybe ten minutes of content in the hour and a half. So why did I find it so enjoyable? I even dreamed about it and woke up feeling peaceful and happy. It was cozy. It made me feel like a little kid. I remembered family rooms from long ago, dark furniture of a type now seen only in Salvation Army outlets, the smell of carpets made of wool, and the miraculous blue light of the infant television, then a medium with more charm than power. It reminded me of my favorite show in those days of the seven-inch screen, Howdy Doody. This was a kid's show with a tall, avuncular host, a westerner, Buffalo Bob, and an irrepressible boy, a puppet, Howdy Doody a little on the smarmy side, but withal perky and lovable. There was a studio audience, the peanut gallery, a bunch of kids who cheered on cue. And there was a clown, Clarabelle, who ran around squirting everyone with seltzer, an element the debate sadly lacked. In my imagination, I fixed it up a little bit. Howdy Doody, played by Dan Quayle, has been hypnotized by the evil Mr. Bluster into believing that he's a candidate for vice president of Dutyville. Chief Thunderthud an Indian medicine man, warns Buffalo Bob, Lloyd Benson, that it would be dangerous to wake Howdy Doody or contradict him. So to humor Howdy, they organize a debate. As the actual debate fades into history, it blends with my recollections of childhood television and leaves me with a composite image of a show I could almost believe I saw. Oh, well, Howdy Doody, kids, and Howdy! Bob. Well, howdy, Mr. Doody. And boys and girls at home and kids in the gallery, let's go! And now, The War of the Worlds, a radio extravaganza that was actually pretty scary sounding. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News, Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. Here's Leanne Hansen. On this date 50 years ago, on the night before Halloween, the world came to an end. At least that's the way it seemed to many people who heard this broadcast. 
That night, October 30, 1938, six million CBS radio listeners heard Orson Welles and his Mercury Theater on the air in a dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. As many as a million of those listeners believed that they were hearing news reports of an actual invasion from the planet Mars. John Rieger has the story of the legendary panic broadcast. Orson Welles called The War of the Worlds a Halloween prank, a clever adaptation of the well-known story by H.G. Wells in which an ordinary program of dance music would be interrupted by news bulletins to tell the scary story of an invasion from Mars. Despite all the usual announcements and the patently impossible sequence of events, the technique proved so convincing that listeners across the country panicked. Producer Norman Corwin had the bad luck to follow War of the Worlds on CBS and wound up talking to empty living rooms across America. The ability of radio to create this kind of psychotic effect uh, certainly was a demonstration of its ubiquity and its penetrability and its power. Radio, after all, unlike any other medium, would get inside homes and inside automobiles. It would be in the bedroom and the living room and in the, in the laundry room. The printed word has to be circulated. If it's a newspaper, it has to be sold. It has to reach its subscribers. So the effect of it is spread out over hours, perhaps days. But radio is instantaneous. It is that speed and the simultaneousness of its transmission that makes any such phenomenon almost immeasurably deeper in its effect. It seems inconceivable that anyone listening attentively from the beginning could have been fooled. But many tuned in casually to a program of dance music. Millions apparently tuned over from the Edgar Bergen show just in time to hear people being roasted by Martian heat rays. And if the action seems transparently implausible to us today, it couldn't have been better tailored to fit the anxieties of America in the fall of 1938, after several years of depression and on the eve of World War II. Princeton psychologist Joel Cooper. Uh, newspaper accounts, social historians of the day certainly will attest to the fact that there was, a, that there was an unease as people worried about uh, the events that were happening in Europe. It it's, was not that they were anticipating an attack from uh, the Germans or the Italians. It was not that they were anticipating some imminent event, and yet there was this general feeling of unease. Um, when an event can occur that can help to explain that unease, people jump to it. And on the Halloween Eve of 1938, an event did occur. I'm speaking from the broadcasting building I'm speaking from the roof of broadcasting building New York City the bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach estimated in the last two hours three million people have moved out along the roads to the north this may be the last broadcast we'll stay here to the end Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. 
Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. Fifth Avenue, uh, a hundred yards away, it's, it's 50 feet. In the panic, no one was killed. But many who were fooled were angry. They felt they'd been intentionally duped by fake news bulletins. Calls went up on Capitol Hill for new regulation to prevent such abuses. Several people filed suits against CBS, though for some reason none of them ever stuck. For their part, the networks became resolutely timid. Norman Corwin recalls that CBS dropped a scheduled rebroadcast of his program, They Fly Through the Air, even though it had been an award winner before the panic. The panic had one immediate effect on broadcast policy. Interruptions for fictional news bulletins were out. The Mercury Theater on the air, however, suddenly found itself with a sponsor, Campbell's Soup. For Howard Koch, John Houseman, and Orson Welles, the panic broadcast was a ticket to Hollywood. Koch would go on to win an Academy Award for his screenplay, Casablanca. And Welles would land a movie deal giving him unprecedented creative control. The result would be a movie called Citizen Kane. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. Orson Welles, October 30th, 1938. I'm John Rieger for National Public Radio. And now for a story that will make you glad you are hearing it in relative comfort and safety. Here's Renee Montaigne. One week after the conquest of Mount Everest by the first American woman, Stacy Allison of Portland, Oregon, Peggy Luce of Redmond, Washington, and Jeffrey Tabin of Glencoe, Illinois, have also reached the summit. They are members of the same team as Allison and scaled the mountain from the South Call, or Ridge. Our colleague Peter Breslow is with the Wyoming Centennial Expedition on Mount Everest. The expedition is painstakingly nearing the summit. On the way up, they've had to conquer the North Call. 
2,000 vertical feet of snow and ice. While his fellow climbers lug 30-pound packs in very thin air, Peter carried a somewhat lighter load and a tape recorder to bring you this breathless account of the 12-hour climb. Just hiked up from advanced base camp about an hour or so, and, uh, and David Slow is going to show me how to work an avalanche deeper. It's transmit. Yep. Now, if you get buried under... I'm going to have to listen back the whole time now. I'm going to send the volume now. Uh, if you get buried under six feet of snow, we'll be able to dig you out. If you're under 12 feet of snow, you just call the family. <laughs> Got my beeper in my pocket. That's definitely the last way I want to go. Because the worst part would be if you didn't get squished right off, and then you just had to sit there in the pitch black, not knowing if anybody's going to ever find you. Put your feet <coughs> against the rungs. 
Peter Breslow. Later that year, Peter Breslow won a Peabody Award for this piece, which was part of a Cowboys and Everest series. I talked to Peter recently about his climb, and he assured me that he survived. So, it's not enough that we climb Everest. Now, let's experience life through the dimpled charm of that actor, Tom Hanks. There's this theory that the world is broken up into two groups of people. Um, the people that laugh and the people who make the people laugh. And I think I've always been one of the people who make the people laugh. Uh, you, you know, this, are these people born, not made, whatever. I, I think that because I was funny uh, and comfortable with being funny, that gave me the, the courage to get up and be an actor in the first place. And because, you know, because there are people who are funny, they, end up, they usually get the comedic parts, so... <laughs> I, I, I can say, yeah, I, dis, I, I did gravitate to it, but I really just gravitated to being an actor more than anything else. I never thought uh, of, of a qualitative difference between acting seriously and acting comedically. You've gotten to work with a lot of really good sketch comics, Dan Aykroyd in, in uh, Dragnet, John Candy in Splash, uh, Jackie Gleason yeah. in, um, uh, in Nothing in Common. And I was wondering if you picked up things working with them since they did all these sketch comedy type things as opposed... I mean, in, in addition to films, but they yeah. got their start during sketch comedy, which is, to my knowledge, something that you hadn't done. No, uh-uh. Well, see, they also wrote all their own stuff as well, and that, uh-huh. that was really where the influence uh, I saw. That's spe- really specifically why I wanted to work with Dan, to see how he does this, because Dan also wrote the script. That the, he also wrote Dragnet that we were doing. Right. Uh, and I was, I've always been, I've been fascinated from that you know, beginning-to-end process of writing it and then performing it as well. Uh, you know, John and Dan also came from Second City, uh, which is probably, I mean, I mean, they wrote the book on how to do all that kind of stuff. And, of course, Gleason was you know, one of the icons of our, of our age. Uh, but it's not what I do. I think that's what I probably gleaned from, from the experience of working with them, is that I don't do that. I don't take that approach. What's I'm, the difference between your approach and the sketch approach? Well, I, I think that they're much more, uh, I guess, polarized as far as the direction that they're going, because 
um, because they have the the upfront uh, creative input into it. I essentially do what I'm told. I'm I, you know the, the writer tells me one thing to do, and then it's it's uh, supplemented by what the director tells me what to do, and then I, I end up you know bringing some sort of unspoken thing to do myself. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. I don't uh, I don't start off at the beginning. I, I come in a little bit later on. Do you feel lucky to have started a film career and bypassed uh, teen movies and quote brat pack movies? You really had your own identity right from the start. You weren't identified with a group, and you weren't in incredibly dumb movies. There's people who will disagree with you. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I, I have to agree with you. I, I, never, I don't think I've made a stupid movie yet. I've made some bad movies, but I haven't made stupid movies. Uh, and I think it's because of my age. Uh, I'm, I'm 32, which is. I don't know. It, it's not old school, and yet it's not uh, you know it's not the brat pack, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And part of it is also, I, I think, uh, my uh, well, my looks, for for lack of anything else. I mean, I, I think I'm a relatively decent looking guy, but I'm not particularly classically handsome. But and yet I'm not uh, peculiar enough to be like a character guy. So I don't know. I think I'm just one of these guys who like uh, like a. Like in a pachinko parlor game, I'm just one of these guy, a ball that keeps falling through crack after crack after crack after <laughs> crack until I end up somewhere at the at the bottom. When you first started uh, auditioning, how did you test? What kind of, of roles did casting directors think of you for? Do, do, do you know the kinds of notes they took on you? The kinds of judgments they made about you very early on? Well, uh, you know, it the in the early in the early going, I. I Ended up reading for like the weird guy an awful lot, the 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 not the best friend of the lead character, but the guy who who strikes out with the women, the insecure guy who supplements for his insecurity with the, with being funny. An awful lot of a lot awful lot of those characters, which are pretty one dimensional, um, because of the the TV show that that I did. Uh, because I was, you know, moved up to the front and was one of the main guys. This is Bosom Buddies. Yeah, that Bosom Buddies. Um, I was able. I probably. I think that's where I was able to bypass an awful lot of those kind of, you know, stupid movies, stupid roles um, that you were talking about earlier. Um, mm-hmm. Because he, I was a guy who had, I guess, somewhat uh, an amount of emotion invested in this failure. You know, I wanted the. I wanted the beautiful girl and was, never got her. And uh, it was from my point of view, as opposed to just being the hard luck guy i was the guy who the audience was identifying with um but you know i geez it's it's been so long now since uh so it's actually been in kind of an audition process that uh that's what i remember most saying mm-hmm. okay well you're funny so do this uh and do it funny uh that was good uh, do it funnier and and i could do that so i would do that and so that's so uh, that's where i had attention paid for me. but you know thank goodness i didn't get too many of those jobs well no, it's interesting you've gotten leading man roles without being the muscle-bound hunk and most leading men nowadays have to like really have big muscles bulging out <laughs> of their, well, they their don't arms have to. And there's chest no law that's been written there, but a lot I of them do i sometimes think that there has been a law written about that uh, but but anyways it has has that been um been difficult to do to to get leading men roles and not and not be the the kind of stereotyped leading man uh, not have that kind of physique well i i, I think luckily is the, the the leading roles that i've had or that physique was never you know necessary i see i was very lucky is because the, the first movie that i did splash uh, with you know, with Ron Howard and Daryl Hannah and John Candy and all those people, um, I was the lead guy in it. I was the guy who gets the girl, uh, and that pretty much just establishes everything. That, by definition, is a leading man—the guy who gets the girl. And because it was me, well, 
I'm a leading man. Mm-hmm. And uh, the muscles had nothing to do with it, uh, certainly, I can, <laughs> as the movie speaks for itself on that point. Uh, so I was just kind of this guy who I think is the point of view of the writers who write these things. They would like to have the girl. They would like to be funny enough to get the girl. And they would like to... Uh, to see themselves with uh, with the girl at the end of the movie. Oh, that's so, an interesting point. Well, yeah, I think that's what they do. These guys just kind of write what they would like to, to be like. <laughs> and uh, because I'm not particularly threatening when it comes down to the muscle department, uh, I get the job. Well, I guess it's comedy, too, that, you know, that, that maybe maybe in an action picture you, you need the muscles more than in a comedy. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know too many muscle-bound comedians. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some. I Joe Piscopo. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah, yeah, there you go. There's the one guy. Well, since you mentioned Splash, I thought maybe we'd play a short clip from it and uh, remind ourselves of, of your performance in there. And this is a uh, in Splash. You play um, you play uh, a young man who falls in love with a mermaid. And in this scene, you're you're coming home, and um, and the mermaid is uh, watching TV and weeping. Madison, what is it? What happened? It's the saddest thing I ever saw. It's Bonanza. A man killed another man and he died right in the middle of the street. Oh, no, no, no. This is only TV. I thought you understood about TV. See, this is this is make-believe. This is just pretend killing that, that's going on here. See, now, now, this guy, he's an actor, and next week he'll get shot on another show. When you think about it, it's kind of funny. You know, I'm supposed to laugh. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I've got a kind of stupid question for you about the end of Splash when you're swimming in your suit and your shoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that hard to do? I mean, without uh, drowning? I, it, I imagine you were in a big tub or something. No, no, we were in the middle of the ocean in, oh, the, really? in the Bahamas. Yeah. What was difficult about it was that uh, I had I had iron weights in my pants. I had to wear like you know they put like ten pounds, fifteen pounds of iron in my pockets, and that was difficult. Yeah. Because you had to swim. Otherwise, you float up to the top, you see. And we were holding our breath, and we couldn't see anything, and uh, it was very uncomfortable. Of course, Daryl had the tail. She could move around a little bit better down there. But uh, it was hard, but it was the grand adventure of movie making. Are there particular movies or actors who inspired you to want to act yourself? Uh, yeah, Robert Duvall was uh, was a great inspiration to me when I was younger. I, yeah, when I went and saw the like the Godfather pictures, uh-huh. uh, it was Duvall's performance that that made me sit up and take notice when when I came out of them. Um, certainly, in all of the early films of like Martin Scorsese, these were guys who made me sit up and take notice. Earlier on, um, I, I always thought one of the best actors was uh, Jason Robards. He was a guy who I would uh, I would pay to walk across the street. I mean, I was. A, I mean, I, I saw all the movies for the most part that came out. But these are the guys who who I became somewhat the, kind of the small champions of. But it's interesting because it's it's exactly not the kind of movie that you've been making yourself. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know why that is exactly. I can only you know. I, I, it's I think it's because I've always been relatively uh, funny. So to me. Uh, the funny stuff always takes care of itself, and the, the real challenge lies in the other's areas. So you think you, you've modeled yourself, in a way, on, on Robert Duvall and Jason Robards? Well, I've tried to, but I, I, I'm not saying that I'm emulating these guys. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I think that they, they're, the, they're the type of careers that, uh, that I've always wanted to have. Now, you studied acting in college and did an internship with uh, a Shakespeare festival. What kind of roles would you play when you were acting in theater? Would, would, would they usually be the Shakespearean comedies or, or uh, the, the we tragedies? Did, I, we did them both. Uh, I, mean, I played uh, Cassio and Othello and uh, Rosencrantz and Hamlet and uh, Falconbridge and, 
in uh, King John, but we also played Grumio in Taming of the Shrew and Proteus in Two Gentlemen of Verona and uh, Ague Cheek and Fabian in Twelfth Night. You know, you do good roles, you do bad roles, you do comedies, you do tragedies, you do histories. That was a great thing about college and classical repertory theater is you got an opportunity to do it all. But you also did, uh, you know, George Gibbs in Our Town. Uh, uh, oh, what, what was some of the other things? I can't remember the resume now. But uh, I, you, you ended up doing it all. Has acting changed your self-image or even how you physically think of yourself? Um, and I'm wondering if, if the way you see yourself on screen is different from the way you'd always thought of yourself as looking in your mind's eye. Oh, no, it's always totally... I always hoped that I looked like William Holden and instead, <laughs> instead I looked like this other guy. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, that's probably a very, very difficult thing about doing what I do is that I have to look at myself so often and it's such a... No one should have to look at themselves that much. Uh, or hear themselves. I have this big nose and a squeaky voice, and and, Th- and that's how you think of yourself. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's I, not I, how other people think of you. Well, God bless them, because uh, all I see is this massive. I, I keep wondering what squirrel ran through my hair all the time. <laughs> it's, it's very, very painful. I wish I had a career in radio instead. <laughs> um, yeah, l- lucky me, right? Totally invisible. Um, w- would would you have marketable skills if you were in acting? Do you think of yourself as having other marketable skills? Uh, I, you know, some sort of a salesman or something like an insurance business. I worked in in a, as a I worked in the hotels for a while. I worked in hotels. Doing what? Uh, I was a I was a bellman. I was a bell service bell boy, bell hop, whatever the appropriate term. But actually, bellman is the way you should describe them. I did that for a while, and it was. You know, an interesting, fun job. Put a lot of cash in my my pocket. But I have no idea what I would do other than this. Mm -hmm. Um, I made a living for a while in the theater as a technician, as a stage manager, and as a carpenter. Um, So maybe that. But I don't honestly think I have any other skills. I know that's probably bad to say, but this is the only thing I can really do. I've tried, like, uh, even writing, or uh, which I don't have the discipline for, or... Uh, I don't. I don't know what else I would do. It seems to me that this is a turning point in your career because you've you've gotten uh, so uh, so famous and so acclaimed uh, recently. I, I think we've all seen actors and other performers who, when they reach a certain height in their career, lose something because I don't know because of why. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, but the the engines that seem to have driven them in the first place get turned down after all the acclaim sometimes. And, and I wonder if you have, like, a, a, little, a little plan for <laughs> preventing that from happening. Well, no, not really. I, n- I never really have. Uh, I've never been one of those kind of things. I, I, I would like to think that the reason that I've done these jobs is just because they came across and they were different enough from the other things that I've done before, and so I go off and do it. There is a fear, though, that, you know, well, this is it. You know, they're going to catch on. I, there's nothing else here, really, uh, I do this, this is what I do, and I can't really explain it. So maybe this is as, you know, this is my 15 minutes of, uh, of uh, fame that Andy Warhol is always talking about. But uh, um, I, I, what, I can't change that. I, I think that uh, the, the reasons that I went into this in the first place is simply because uh, I enjoy it and it's fun. And that hasn't changed, so, you know, hopefully it will not change. Well, Tom Hanks did pretty well with that 15 minutes of fame. Special thanks this month go to Kara Philbin, Allison Cork, and Franz Osario. So thanks for joining us. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback.